If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. We continue in our study of Nehemiah. And in chapter 5, we dealt with the internal problems among the Jews. In chapter 6, we looked at the external threats, the ongoing opposition. And now we come to a new section in the book of Nehemiah, in which there is a renewing of the covenant. There are reforms that take place under Nehemiah and Ezra, someone we've seen before. It begins with the renewal of the covenant in chapter 8, but we need to actually back up. I've turned you to, told you to turn to chapter 8, but we need to back up to chapter 7 because it lays an important foundation for us to see what is being said. One might say, well, this goes without being said. You don't need to say this, but I think we do. I think we do need to recognize the foundation to the renewal of the covenant is people. You can't have a covenant unless you have parties involved. And so as we begin in chapter 7, specific individuals are mentioned. Many of the names we will not read. But we are given a sense that in the renewing of the covenant, people are involved. If you look at the beginning of chapter 7, we have two men that are mentioned, Hanani and Hananiah, verses 1 and 2. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than men do, and more than most men do. We read about Hananiah at the beginning of the book. He is actually the brother of Nehemiah who had visited Jerusalem, and he comes back with a report. Those who survived the exile are back in the province, back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. It is because of this report that Nehemiah eventually goes to Jerusalem and begins the project of rebuilding the walls and setting the gates in place. Hananiah is, well, this is the third time we've actually seen this name in the book, but this is the third individual. It was a very common name. Uh, two were mentioned in chapter 3 with the rebuilding of the walls. One of them, interesting enough, was a perfumer. But this man is described as the governor or the commander of the citadel, He's also described as a man of integrity because he feared God more than most men do. It is in this context that Nehemiah gives instructions. If you look at verse number 3 of chapter 7, I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their post and some near their own houses. There is a problem. They've finished the walls. They've put the gates in place. Um, there are no more gaps. There are no more holes for Sanballat and Tobiah, the enemies, to sort of sweep in if they want to. Um, but there's a problem, and that is there aren't many people living in the city of Jerusalem. They've got the wall up. They just don't have a lot of people in. If you look at verse number four, now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. This leads us to the second group of people that are mentioned here as the foundation of the renewing of the covenant, and that is the exiles, verse 5. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical reg uh, record of those who had been the first to return. 
And if you look at the rest of the chapter, chapter 7, I'm not going to read the names, but we have a listing of the people who came some 72 years earlier, who had come because Cyrus the Persian had made a decree that in fact the temple should be rebuilt. And so in Ezra chapter 2, we have a list of names. There are some differences, but it's pretty much the same list of people who had come to Jerusalem to live. Now, the purpose of this list, we will, let me just skip ahead to it, we'll come to it in a couple weeks, is found in chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own homes, or their own towns. The people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So we have a list of names because at a certain point they're going to basically do a lottery. One in ten is going to leave their hometown, their, ho- their house, and they're going to move to Jerusalem to repopulate the city. It is interesting that Nehemiah refers to it as the holy city. And there is a real purpose to doing what they're doing, rebuilding the temple and repopulating Jerusalem. And when we get to the end of this series, we will see that. The third group or the third person that is mentioned here is Ezra. We've already looked at Ezra in the book of Ezra, in the second half of the book. Uh, We are told that he is a direct descendant and we're given his genealogy all the way back to Aaron, the first high priest. Ezra is going to be the high priest. He is a descendant of the first high priest. And we are told he was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And then we are told, for Ezra devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teach its decrees and laws in Israel. In terms of chronology, we have the first wave. 58, laters we have, 58 years later, we have the second wave, that's Ezra. And then 14 years later, we have the third wave, and that is Nehemiah, who comes to rebuild the walls. Just to remind you of what we saw about Ezra, he is a man of integrity. Uh, the ESV says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God, and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He devoted himself, he set his heart to do this, to study the law, to practice the law, and then to teach other people the law of God. This is what Ezra did. This is what the Levites were to do, were to teach the people of God the law of God, and he had done this. I do find it worth noting that he is not simply someone who is an expert of the law, he is someone who practices the law. And it reminds me of what James tells us, that we are not to be hearers only, but practices. We are to be doers of the word. Otherwise, we deceive ourselves. Ezra came to Jerusalem as a spiritual leader to teach the people how to worship God. The temple's built, but the worship system was not in place as it should have been. Nehemiah comes as a civic leader to rebuild the walls. But Nehemiah doesn't happen without Ezra. It just doesn't happen. See, Nehemiah hears about the destruction of the city and that, the, that in fact the, wall, the city is in terrible shape, the walls are broken down. He goes in, he makes a nighttime reconnaissance, and then he tells the people his plans. This is from Nehemiah chapter 2. I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? 
Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start building. So they began this good work. I'm convinced that they would not have said, yeah, let's do this, if in fact Ezra had not been preaching and teaching the people the law of God for the previous 14 years. And here is the foundation of the renewing of the covenant. It is a covenant between God and his people. It requires people. And Ezra has been teaching people, God's people, what the covenant is all about, the law of God. Yeah, but there's still something missing. And this is what we find when we come to chapter 8. It's interesting, I don't know if in your translation you see it, but chapter 8 actually is sort of the second part of a sentence that ends chapter 7. I don't know if you notice that. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, now chapter 8, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. This is just an amazing thing that happens, and I think Ezra must have been deeply moved by it. Timeline again. Let's do the time. Four days earlier, they finally finished rebuilding the walls. It's the 25th day of the month of Elul. Now it is the first day of the seventh month, Tishri. Four days have passed between completing the task, and they come to the high priest. They come to Ezra, and they say, this is what we want you to do. Tishri is an important month. The seventh month is important. It is the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, This is from Leviticus. Say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts the day in which they blew the trumpets. In Numbers, on the first day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. It is a day for you to sound the trumpets. But there's something else that happens in the seventh month, and that is the day of atonement, what is known as Yom Kippur. It's on the tenth day of the month. And then even later, as we will see, it's also the time for the Feast of Tabernacles. Why is it that people have gathered on the first day of the seventh month? Well, one might be cynical and say, well, in fact, they're just kind of hanging around because, you know, the project was finished four days earlier. They're still sort of decompressing. They've taken care of things. Um, But I think there's something else. They've been listening to Ezra for 14 years. They've been listening and they've been watching as he performs sacrifices they now know that this is the day of the Feast of Trumpets. It's followed by a day of atonement. So they tell the high priest, it's interesting, he doesn't tell them, they tell him to bring out the law of Moses. It's really quite remarkable. Now, beginning at verse number 2, going down to verse number 9 it is, uh, verse 8, It seems a bit confusing because basically what we're given is two accounts of the same event. So let me read it to you and then sort of spell out what happens. Verse 2, So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. 
He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah, and on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, or Malkijah, Hashem, Hashdab, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, responded Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people could understand what was being read. This is what we find. That Ezra, that the whole assembly comes together. They say we want the law of God. He brings out the law. He stands on a platform. Apparently this had been constructed specifically for this purpose. And he begins by praising God. That is, he prays. He prays to the Lord, the great God. And the people respond. They lift their hands and they say, Amen, Amen. They bow down and they worship the Lord. Ezra opens the law and the people stand up out of reverence for the reading of the law. He reads from daybreak to noon. Some people have suggested this is a full six hours of reading. And on the platform are 13 Levites, uh, six on his right and seven on his left. And here it's a bit hazy, uh, exactly what happens. But they, in fact, Ezra reads and they explain to the people what is being said. And we don't know if they broke up into groups, you know, breakout groups or how they did it. Um, But he read the law, which was written in Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic and it... It's an older form of Hebrew, so they may not, just in terms of language, not been able to follow. But they also explain. They open scripture and said, this is what God means when he says such and such. And the law includes the book of Genesis. So we have the stories of creation, of the flood, of the calling of Abraham, and all this. And they explain it to the people. We don't know if they did this while Ezra was reading, or if he sort of took a break while... People explain the different ones. Um, we don't know. Perhaps they reread what Ezra had just read so that he, they could give a clearer meaning. What we do know is that there were thousands of people. Some people have suggested between 30 and 50,000 people. That's a lot of people. And so even though he is up on a platform, uh, you have people who speak to smaller groups, but still thousands of people who explain what the law of God means. They make the law of God clear. They explain what is written in the law, giving the meaning. Today we call this exposition, expository preaching. Scripture is read and then it is explained. It has been argued, and I will not disagree, that this day was a turning point in the history of God's people. From now on, from this day on, the first day of the seventh month, the Israelites will be known as the people of the book. The Jews will be known as the people of the book. Yes, there's a a temple. 
There's a sacrificial system that's been around for a while. And the law has been there as well. But now the focus is on what God has taught his people in the book of the law. Now, this doesn't mean that they worshipped scripture. It doesn't mean that they worshipped the law. In fact, what we find is they praise God. They don't praise the law. They praise the Lord, the great God. The law, though, reveals who God is. This is who God is. And now they have a greater sense of who he is. And therefore, they become, on this day, the people of the book. They worship God, not the revelation. But the revelation reveals who he is. Now we're told how they respond. Look at verse number 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. You see, in law we find out what is right and what is wrong. We find out what we've been doing wrong and what we've been doing right. So in many of our cases, it's more wrong than right. And as the people listened that day, they wept. They were convicted. They recognized. We have not been living the way that we should. We shouldn't take from this, though, that to be a holy person or to be aware of sin requires sorrow. I think sorrow can be appropriate. But what we hear from Nehemiah is something very different. Look at verse number 10. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord our God. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Yes, there is a place for sorrow over sin, but there should be great rejoicing, because now now I know what is right and what is wrong. This is what I should do, and this is what I should not do. This is what God, who made me, says is pleasing to him. And while sorrowing over sin makes sense, I'm not questioning that. They seem to have forgotten, and we forget sometimes as well, that the law of God is a gift. It is a revelation of God. It is a wonderful gift. The psalmist tell us a number of times, you know, we, you've given us your just decrees, and you haven't done this for other people. Other nations don't have the law of God. The Jews did, and this is an occasion for great joy. Sorrow is not the only response. It's not the only possible response. And so the people do as their governor, Nehemiah, uh, instructs them, as do the Levites. They enjoy good meals, and they share with those who were not able to attend. And they celebrate with great joy. But it's not the end of the story. Verse number 13, we have sort of a private Bible study. On the second day of the month, that's the next day, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention uh, to the words of the law. Here we find that the leadership meets with Ezra. They, they want this sort of a special instruction with regard to this. And they discover something that they have not been doing. Verse 14, they found written in the law 
which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns in Jerusalem, go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees, and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths as it is written. They send out the word. They've gotten it, now they send it out. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. This is a great time of celebration. And every day, Ezra is out there reading the law of God. But as we will see, the Lord willing, next week, something else comes after all of this, and that is confession. And that is what chapter 9 deals with at length. We have a rather lengthy lengthy prayer of confession as the people confess their sins. This is an amazing time in the history of God's people. But we need to understand something. It was at least 14 years in the making. While we're not told directly, I think it's obvious to me that Ezra was there for 14 years teaching the people. We are told that he devoted himself to the study of scripture, of the law, putting it into practice, and teaching its decrees and laws to the people of Israel. And ask yourself, how else is it that the people knew to come to Ezra on the first day of the seventh month to say, you need to read us the law of God? This doesn't just come out of thin air. They've been listening for 14 years, and now they get it. This is the Feast of Trumpets, And this is a time when Ezra should read them the law. Ezra had served the Lord and his people faithfully for 14 years. But it is not until this day. It is not until this day, the seventh month, the first day of the seventh month, that we see this result. And I think we don't really truly appreciate or understand that it just didn't come out of thin air. In the same way that when Nehemiah said, we need to rebuild the walls, the people said, let's do it. And they put their hands to work. That didn't come out of nowhere. You know, somebody might say, well, Nehemiah is you know, a charismatic personality, great leadership skills, and that's why the people followed him. I don't discount that Nehemiah was a great leader, perhaps even a charismatic leader. But his call to work comes after 14 years of teaching. And the people respond. A book that came out, I think, last year is called uh, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians. It's by Christian Armstrong. And he makes a case that what we find among many American evangelicals, so that's us, is what he calls immediatism. It's a word I wasn't familiar with. And he gives several definitions for it. The quality that makes something seem important or interesting because it is or seems to be happening now. That's why it's important. It's a policy or practice of gaining a desired end by immediate action. And then lastly, an epistemological theory that views the object of perception as directly knowable. That is, I can know this now by myself. In different forms, immediatism delights in novelty, like new things, pragmatism, what works, 
and in common sense thinking rather than waiting on God and looking for divine revelation. And it wants and believes that we can have it right now. It can happen like that. One of the more influential books in the 19th century was written in 1850. It's called The Way of Holiness. And it, it had a profound impact. Uh, even it came within the Wesleyan tradition, but others who were even in the Reformed tradition were greatly affected by it. And the author said, yes, there is a shorter way. I am sure that this long waiting and struggling with the powers of darkness is not necessary. There is a shorter way. I think this would have come as a great surprise to Ezra and all of God's people who have lived before us. To imagine that, yeah, there actually is a shortcut. You don't have to struggle. You don't have to wait. Ezra, 14 years, come on. And I think the church has been very much affected by this. Another book that came out last year is called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire, written by Alan Crater. He's a professor of church history and of missions. And he was trying to find out what is the secret? Why is it that the church, which began as a very small movement in an isolated part of the Roman Empire in Palestine, by the time we come to the 4th century with Constantine, is throughout the empire. It is a major movement. How does that happen? And I think he may have been trying to find some special technique. Was there an evangelistic method that they were using, some strategy? Did they plan this out? How did they do this? And much to his surprise, and to mine I must confess, is that the secret was patience patience. And if you look at the theological writings of the first three centuries of the church, the major theme, it's not missions, it's not evangelizing, it's not being a witness, it's patience. And one of the writers said, we are to be patient as God was patient in the Old Testament. Another says, we are to be patient as Jesus was in the Gospels. See, you could say that Ezra waited 14 years. Yeah, but what about the 58 years before that? And what about the 70 years of exile? And what about the two, years, uh, two centuries of apostasy? Um, God has been very, very patient with his people. As was Ezra. It's patience, but it's not passivity. Ezra didn't sit around for 14 years waiting for this moment to arrive. For 14 years he preached, he taught, he worshipped God and showed people how they were to worship God. There is no guarantee that in his lifetime this event would happen, that somehow the people would come around, they would come to their senses. It's not the point. And this is what we find in the early church in the first three centuries. Just great patience. If anything... I think if we could go back in time, I think we might sort of scold our brothers and sisters and say, you guys need to, be a, you need to get out more. You, know, you, need, to, you need to advertise more. Um, you, don't, you should not make it so difficult for people to come to church. In the second century, in parts of the Roman Empire, if somebody said, I want to follow Jesus, people would say, okay, that's fine. 
You need to be baptized, but for two years we are going to watch you. And we're going to interview your neighbors. And we're going to see if your neighbors think that you're a Christian. And if at the end of two years get a good report, then we'll baptize you. Well, that's not like the day of Pentecost, is it? People believed and were baptized the same day. The early church was marked by great patience. I think we should be as well. And I suspect that it's not so much with each other as it is with ourselves. As we fight the fight, as we struggle with sin, as we seek to grow in God's grace. I mean, don't you find this? You're just like, what's wrong with me? I've been a Christian all these years and I'm still struggling with these things. Why is it so hard? What's wrong with me? I think the call of God is to patience. And as God has been long-suffering with us, by God's grace, we should be with ourselves. This doesn't mean be passive and just, I'm just going to kick back and wait for it all to come, you know, to sort of sweep over me. But to be patient and to be faithful. This is what Ezra does. Fourteen years later, Nehemiah comes along, and one day the light goes on, and the people of Israel get it. And they say, read us the law of God. And wait till we get to chapter 9. Because there is an amazing outpouring, a confession of sin. We recognize who we are. It's all possible by the grace of God. Let's pray together. Father, culturally we just live in a time of instant things. We do not have the patience to wait for a letter in the mail. We have email. Uh, instant messaging. We just are not a patient people as a culture. And this has come into the church. And as the church struggles with things, as we struggle within our own lives, oftentimes we find a great impatience and we're looking for a shortcut, and we've been told by brothers and sisters that there is a shorter way. I thank you for Nehemiah and Ezra, particularly for Ezra, whose great patience is teaching God's people your word, your law. And then one day it all clicks, and they recognize the truth of your word. They mourn, but they also rejoice. And as we will see, the Lord willing, they confess their sins. We as individuals and as a congregation, as we seek to grow, as we struggle with sin, as we seek to become more and more like the Lord Jesus, oftentimes it is quite discouraging. We pray for grace and for patience. That by your grace we would grow and we would become more like the Lord Jesus. Thank you for bringing us together today. The Shriners being with us, we pray for Audrey as she goes off. You would watch over her. Pray for Zib and the baby. Watch over them as well. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.